Today's episode of Here's My Story is brought to you in part by Art and Soul Tattoo and Gallery. Located in the heart and soul of historic New Glarus, Wisconsin, every guest at Art and Soul Tattoo is treated to an experience of fantastic customer service and care, from free consultation to completion of your tattoo or piercing. Come in and experience the art and soul difference. A welcoming atmosphere awaits you with professional and personal style. They are the premier tattooism destination with plenty to see and do in historic New Glarus. Here's my story may contain adult language and adult content, not suitable for a younger audience. Listener discretion is advised. Hello, everyone, and welcome back to another episode, finally, of Here's My Story. Today, we hear the story of Beth, owner and artist of Art and Soul Tattoo and Gallery in New Glarus, Wisconsin, and hear about her battle with Lyme disease, as well as many other life's adversities. Check out her work online at Drink the Paint on Twitter and Instagram, as well as at Art Soul Tattoo on Twitter. I can't thank Beth enough for sharing her story at a time where I'm not getting any submissions, so please, Follow her lead and submit your story for others to hear. With that, though, I think it's time to get started. Today, my name is Beth, and here's my story. My story doesn't have an ending. It's still to be written, and I'm still fighting to live. I think that is what makes it worth sharing. We have birth, death, with that part in the middle, that's what matters. I also don't have all my memories or dates perfectly. It's my story as I remember it, and I've pulled out the details that changed me. A disclaimer that I will talk about mental health, suicide, and abuse, and if any of that is triggering, please proceed with caution. I was born August 31st, 1986, the first child of Hannah and Bob in Elgin, Illinois, at Sherman Hospital. My dad worked in a print production factory, and my mom at the Salvation Army. They were young and in love. My mom came from a military family and has lots of brothers and a sister. My dad has two brothers. They grew up just around the block from each other in Carpentersville, Illinois. My dad was a little older and was friends with one of my mom's older brothers. From the story they would tell in my childhood, my mom always knew she'd fall in love with my dad. It was like a fairy tale hearing the story as a child, but as an adult we know that fairy tales are not real. When my mom's brother, Jesse, died tragically in a car accident, leaving a young widow and newborn behind, my mom and dad reconnected. They got married and had me young. After me, soon came a baby boy, Brad, the oldest little brother. In our youngest years, we toddled around and grew up on the sidelines of a soccer field in Dundee, Illinois, surrounded by my dad's team made up of businessmen, construction workers, immigrants, and everything in between. These men spoke different languages or different nationalities and remained friends for all my childhood. They were staples in our lives and taught us so much more than to kick a ball barefoot. I can't see a soccer ball, smell fresh cut grass, or go out on a light drizzly day and not think about how nice it is to have these memories. My mom is the hardest worker that I've ever met. She is relentless in pursuing goals and makes sure people around her always feel special. 
Her heart for the Salvation Army started in our childhood. When we were not at the soccer field, we were at the Elgin Salvation Army Corps. We would help ring bells, set up food pantry, and do crafts with the craft club. We were introduced to so many people, the helpers, the ones who needed help, politicians, preachers, and kids from all over Illinois. There we learned to be good citizens of the world, to love Jesus, and to always do the most good. My early childhood was rich in experiences and people, but we were not rich. My parents came from lower middle class backgrounds with lots of kids crammed into close quarters. My grandparents still lived just around the block from each other as we were small children we would visit often. My dad's parents were very involved and would let us explore their garden, feed squirrels, and make art. My grandma on my dad's side would always have a sewing, painting, and crafting. It's where my love to make things bloomed. We remained close to my grandparents until my parents divorced in my teenage years. Since, both my grandparents have passed on and my grandmothers have moved away, estranged from our family. When I was in first grade, we moved to Hampshire, Illinois. My parents wanted us to have a quiet life in a small town. And it was an amazing way to grow up. Home of the Whippers. We played every sport under the sun, often with my dad coaching. We worked 6 a.m. to 2 p.m., so was often home by the time we arrived back from school and would spend the afternoons with us. My mom would join us later in the evenings, and life was so good. It was picture perfect from a child's eyes until about fifth grade. In middle school, my parents started fighting and eventually divorced after a long, drawn-out few years of misery. My dad was an atheist and my mom was a Christian. They had different beliefs on how to raise kids. I was a preteen and making things difficult in the most innocent of ways. As all kids struggled during those middle school years, I was trying to figure out who I was. My dad started getting really into political topics and minimalism, and my mom lost herself in work, and the whole energy in our house shifted. My dad became emotionally abusive and was very critical of my weight. I was never huge as a kid. We were always in sports and running around. But as my parents' marriage declined, and as we were left more and more alone, I turned to food for comfort. My mom stepped in, got me a trainer, a nutritionist, and by high school, I was obsessed with being perfect. But since I'm human and not perfect, I would cut myself as punishment for messing up any of the rules I set for myself. I was begging for help and didn't have the emotional intelligence at that age to express myself in any meaningful way. I was committed to a stay in a mental hospital on a children's ward for about a week when things got really bad. It was there I met an art therapist who changed my life. I had no idea that art could be therapy. I started creating art and gained so much confidence. I worked at Paul's Family Restaurant in Elgin, starting as a greeter and working into waiting tables. My boss, George, was tough on me. He always addressed any mistake and pushed me to grow in customer service. He showed me what a great leader is and how to be warm strict. They were flexible with my schedule around sports and school activities. In a lot of ways, the Pauls family became my family during the time of my life at home was still falling apart. I worked hard, made amazing money for a kid, and was focused on college. I'd say junior year of high school, I was just killing it. I had an awesome job, friends, was involved with school, 
and an older boyfriend. I didn't drink or party. I showed cows and ran half marathons. I was the thinnest I'd ever been. I was getting ready for junior prom and was so proud you could see my hip bones a little through my dress. I was at a really healthy weight and was just glowing. It was at this time my dad said something to me that I know he really didn't mean, but crushed my spirit and devastated me. He said, you know, if you lost a few more pounds, you'd actually be pretty. From that moment on, separating my self-worth from my weight was a struggle, and I continue to have disordered eating patterns. They were so tied together, happy, and what happy was supposed to look like. I also overheard lots of fights and in a lot of ways felt the blame for my parents' divorce. My world was falling apart. My parents were at war with each other, and our house was the battleground. I felt really alone, even though my mom would do everything that she could to keep things together. I don't have a great timeline of these years or know exactly what happened when. Trauma does that to the brain. The only escape I saw was getting to college. So I focused on getting as far away from Whipperville as I could and applied for Southern Illinois University for early acceptance. I chose there because I had the best art therapy program in the state and it was far from home. Once I got there, I could relax a little. Felt like maybe I could find somewhere to fit in and join the Alpha Sigma Tau sorority. It's also during this time I was bit by a tick and contracted Lyme disease, but wouldn't know for years. I was keeping my grades up, often working one to two jobs at a time. I also found alcohol. I never really drank before college, so I learned to drown my sorrows in a natty light can. I was wild and looking for love in all the wrong places. I drank smoked, and partied my way into some scary situations. I stopped talking to my family much, my dad at all, and lived a split life. One at school, in my classes, or at my jobs where I excelled, and one in my personal life where I was always drunk, high, or having sex just to feel something. I also started self-harming again as I was spiraling. What I didn't know during this time, I was also experiencing Lyme symptoms. My hair started to fall out. I was starting to have anxiety attacks. My face would go numb. I was a mess. I decided to transfer to SIU Carbondale my junior year of college. Honestly, to party harder and to follow my best friend. One night after walking home barefoot with no memory of the night before but signs of sexual assault on my body, I knew I needed to get my life together. I kept putting myself in dangerous situations. I wanted to help others, but refused to help myself. I started dating my best friend's brother, and shortly after, I became pregnant. Pregnancy wasn't scary to me. I was surprisingly really calm, and knew from the moment I peed on a stick, it was twins. Yes, 20, unmarried, in the middle of college, and twins. But this pregnancy saved my life. I immediately stopped drinking and partying, I was back to myself. I loved my growing belly. I loved feeling them move. Their dad lived back towards SIUE, so I transferred back to finish up my undergrad and to get my teaching degree. Terry, my twin's father, supported me through this time. He was sweet and kind and to this day is an amazing dad. We co-parent like no other, often spending holidays together and is still one of my best friends. My own family didn't see me much, and I was focused on creating a life 
my kids would be proud of. I had Jesse and Jordan on August 29th in Marion, Illinois. They were a little over six pounds each and perfect. It was a scheduled C-section and a little dramatic for me. My blood pressure was low after surgery and I was taken from the twins and put in a room by myself for an hour alone. It was the happiest and scariest day of my life to that point. I turned 21 the day we were released from the hospital. Even though Terry, their dad, is an awesome guy, he wasn't my forever person. I was still young and trying to get my life together. I had just graduated and took a job working at Beverly Farms as head of one of the buildings in charge of the caretakers for a men's home and saved to get an apartment. I was so proud of that little apartment, started dating again, and met an older man with two kids. This relationship taught me a lot about adult love, and I discovered my self-worth. It also led to meeting a lot of locals and networked my way into a teaching job that falls as a middle school art teacher and head varsity cheer coach. One day he took me down to the marina his aunt ran and fell in love with him, with the Mississippi, with boat culture. It was the first place that felt like home since I left my childhood home. I was hired by his aunt to paint murals in the marina, my first real art job. From there, it gave me confidence to write, illustrate, and publish my first children's book, Lula. This relationship wasn't right for either of us. We had too much baggage and different futures ahead, but it prepared me for what would become the greatest love story of all time. And without it, I wouldn't have been the person I needed to be when I met my husband. While I was out having an intense four years, my younger brother Brad was home. We stayed in touch and were close, but I didn't see him much as he finished college. His senior year, my youngest brother was born, and I started coming home with the twins to visit him and my mom every few months. He eventually ended up living with a group of guys at NIU, and it was there that I met the man who would forever change my life. The second I saw my brother's best friend, I knew he was special. I knew after just a few hours he'd be my husband one day. I started to visit more often as an excuse to see him. Our courtship was fast and intense. He moved into my apartment after just a few months and has been helping me raise my boys ever since. The next year, the art program was cut and I took a job the first week school started in Chester, Illinois. We moved a week later and started a brand new life in a brand new town that would steal our hearts like Jake stole mine. We bought a little home and had a few years of just picture-perfect living. I loved my job at Chester Grade School. I taught art and ran the local cable access channel. I got into politics, was involved in political radio, and opening a nonprofit in St. Louis. We were busy and happy. We then opened an art store and had paint-your-own-pottery, a photo booth, and hosted paint parties, a little ahead of the whole paint party craze. I started to love myself again and fell deeper and deeper in love with Jake and my boys. We were married eight years ago in a beautiful backyard of my dear friend and mentor, the late Carolyn Wiley, in Chester, Illinois, overlooking Mississippi on a perfect Memorial Day weekend. The year after our wedding was going great, until, like always happens, the arts gets put on the chopping block. It looked like I was going to lose my art teaching job again and we decided it was Jake's turn to dream. He chose to follow his passion and become a Rockford, Illinois police officer. We also became pregnant quickly, and another baby boy was on the way. 
It was a whirlwind year. There was a lot going on. I was now in my late 20s, and pregnancy was harder. Jake was traveling back and forth for interviews, and the stress of everything brought out a lot of weird changes in my body that I attributed to pregnancy. I became weirdly obsessed with natural labor. I dove in, believed that if I could just have this baby at home, I would be healed, and we'd get our magical life back. I researched and fought the system, hiring a midwife from St. Louis. I was 41 weeks pregnant when Jake was sworn in as an officer in Rockford. I had come up for the ceremony and spent a few days, but needed to get back to my midwife as this baby would come any time. We were very lucky that we were sending him to the police academy close to our home in the St. Louis area. I dropped him off at the academy, dropped the twins off at their dad's house, and headed to my house in contractions starting to get intense. I was alone and scared. The twins' dad knew I was in labor and offered to drive me to the midwife. I called Jake and he met us there. Early in the morning hours after days of labor, Max was born in call. His waters were intact. And this is just a crunchy, granola-loving mama's dream. In all the anime midwife books and on all the forums of having a baby that is born in his waters is magical and rare. It's a sign of good fortune and luck, and it was just a dream. He was almost 10 pounds and felt more like a three-month-old than a newborn with an old soul. He healed the trauma from the C-section I had with the twins and was a perfect addition to our family. Jake had to go right back to the academy and I headed home, alone with a newborn, for 10 weeks. I also needed to pick up our home and move from southern Illinois to northern Illinois and didn't have a place to bring my family yet. I was leaving my business, my school family, the town that I grew to love, the Mississippi. It was a lot. It was bad timing. And it was out of my hands. I sunk into a postpartum depression so deep that for weeks I wouldn't leave one room of a home we rented in haste just to make it work. We had moved back by our families who wanted and were willing to help, but I felt alone. I cried and cried. I was angry. I was miserable. I didn't have a job lined up, and I didn't know what was ahead. Luckily, I got a call to come start teaching at Elgin on a cart. We moved to Sycamore to be closer to my mom and youngest brother, and I was still depressed. It was ugly. I was ugly. I hated Jake's job. I felt like he loved Rockford more than me. It was new, and transitioning into an LEO family is tough. The hours were ever-changing. He was a rookie, and we had everything to lose. I said lots of mean and hateful things and tried to push him away, but he didn't budge. With therapy and time... I started to heal mentally from the postpartum state, but I started to notice weird things happening with my body. Slowly, I would get hives and rashes off and on. I would have numbing sensations and weird twitches in my muscles. They would come and go, and I'd just brush them off. I started to have panic attacks, just one every few months. I was exhausted, had headaches, couldn't stop sweating. My muscles would tense up and hurt. I had hip and bone pain and air hunger. Jake and I healed our relationship and bought a home in Rockford. The kids settled into a new school and a routine. We made friends, and I started teaching at Galapagos Charter School. It was an intense job with crazy hours and demands on his teachers. Only 10% retention rate at the time for staff should have been a red flag. Halfway through the year, I knew it was time to go. 
I was still having panic attacks. They were now coming on once daily. I was still having all the symptoms of exhaustion and headaches, and it was getting worse. I went from doctor to doctor to be diagnosed with anxiety. Hi, everybody from the Slay Queens podcast. I'm your host, Wayne Thompson. And I'm also your host, Ashley Zoic. How are you, Ashley? I'm wonderful. How are you, Wayne? I'm doing very well. I do have a question, though. I have an answer. (laughs) (laughs) I'm confident that you do. (laughs) Ashley, what exactly is a Slay Queens podcast? Well, I'm glad you asked. Uh, It is a show where you and I are both dedicated to the discussion of true crimes that affect the LGBTQIA plus community. I feel like that might be a lot for our listeners Mm -hmm. just to kind of absorb and comprehend. Can Mm -hmm. you give us uh, an AKA? I'm happy you asked that as well, Wayne. (laughs) We are also known as the show that takes a deep dive into the dark side of the rainbow. Oh, that is correct. Yes, ma'am, we do. Mm -hmm. And I happen to love the sound of that. I do too. And if you listeners love the sound of that, please, please, please uh, subscribe to us on whatever platform you're listening to this podcast. And we would be forever grateful. We would. So go out and slay queens. Just not each other. Just not each other. (laughs)
I purchased Art and Soul, became a full-time tattooist, and got lost in work. Between the kids, treatment, and tattooing, I was able to manage and live a good life for a few years until it all blew up. Taking 90 pills a day on a schedule is a full-time job in itself. And while I was better, I wasn't cured. There is no cure at this point, even on my radar. I just kept living my life and poured more and more into work to avoid dealing with my health. Then one day, I broke. I couldn't take it anymore. The pills, the side effects, the schedule of it all. I wasn't getting better. I was getting worse and needed more intense intervention. My doctor ordered a pick line for antibiotics, and I fought with the insurance company for months to get it approved. I was dying an agonizing death and was in so much pain all the time. I was losing control over my bladder and my legs. I was still working 10 to 12 hours a day and then collapsing at home. The pick line was supposed to be my savior, and for a while, it was. Once the pick line was placed, insurance decided that I could just administer the drugs myself. Insert crash course into doing your own IV meds. My husband and I stumbled through it all. Since IV meds take hours to get into your line, I couldn't do it at work. I was working all day and doing my treatments all night. I was getting two to three hours of sleep a day, but starting to feel so much better. Once you feel better with Lyme, you should keep doing that treatment for three months. On month one, I developed an allergic reaction to the pick line site. The policy at OSF Hospital, where I would go once a week to get it cleaned, was that they had to keep doing what they were doing. My arm was swollen and was leaking fluids. It was the worst allergic reaction. I fought through it for another month, knowing that this treatment was saving my life. One day, the nurse changing my pick line cover put on a new covering that immediately made my skin blister, pop, and re-blister in the moments that she was standing there. I asked for accommodations. I went to another ER who was able to use a track dressing that didn't irritate my skin and made it through another week. This went on for a month. Eventually, OSF decided to discontinue me as a patient since I wasn't following their protocols. The one where my skin bled, blistered, and oozed. The one where the dressing would fall off from the fluids. The one that was painful. I was using the dressing from Swedes that irritated my skin less. They ripped out my pick line the next day. I was at this point feeling a whole lot better. Life went on like normal. We bought a home in Lake Somerset, Illinois. I grew art and soul and tattooing into an awesome business, and I was living life that I loved until it all came back. It didn't slowly creep up. It hit like a ton of bricks, the air hunger being the worst of all. It started to feel like I was being stabbed through my back in the right shoulder blade while an elephant sat on my chest. I couldn't catch a breath. I was breathing, but the sensation of not getting any air wouldn't leave. If you have ever felt air hunger, it's a symptom that makes you think about suicide. It's debilitating, painful, scary, and like an anxiety attack on steroids. It's the one thing I say, if they could just cure that symptom, I'd be okay with living with the rest. Then came the belly pain. Out of nowhere, on my drive to work, I had cramping that was more painful than contractions or natural birth. I hardly made it to the ER. I crawled in from my car. It was busy in Rockford that day, so I waited for hours in the waiting room with tears streaming down my face. My husband met me there. They did tests, gave me a pain med, and sent me home. 
I slept for a few hours and was awoke to the same pain in my belly, but even more intense. I called my Lyme doctor crying and in agony. She ordered a scan of my abdomen. I drove myself to the imaging place. The doctor who read my scans told me to go directly to the ER and I needed surgery on my bowels as they were obstructed and my stomach lining was inflamed, likely from the months of harsh antibiotics. They also asked about my appendix. They didn't see it, but it wasn't removed. Weird. When I arrived at the ER, the radiologist read the results and a nurse prepped me for surgery, sticking a long tube from my nose to my belly while I was awake and sucked out everything in my stomach. As soon as that was done, the surgeon walked in and said that they didn't think I needed surgery and was sending me home for a follow-up with a GI specialist. The pain was less intense by the morning. I followed up with a GI specialist. He suggested a colonoscopy. He also thought maybe I was just constipated. He never opened any images or read my file. He told me that later when I asked. Two days later, I passed out at work. I was finished with the tattoo and alone cleaning the shop. I'd been sweaty and didn't feel great, but that's kind of a normal thing for me at this point. I woke up on the floor of my station, drove to the ER in Monroe. They did another scan of my abdomen. My husband arrived, and the surgeon there told us that if I wanted to live, that he'd need to operate. He also let us know that he didn't know what he'd find, but there was a lot going on. I was prepped for surgery and was wheeled into the operating room a few days later. My name is Paige, and I'm the host of All the Things That Keep Us Up at Night. It's a true crime podcast with eerie events mixed in. I'd love for you to join me and let me tell you all about the spine-chilling, hair-raising events in true crime history, as well as cases that are currently developing. You can also join the podcast group on Facebook, All the Things That Keep Us Up at Night podcast, and follow the Instagram at All the Things That Keep Us Up. If you'd like to send a suggestion for an upcoming show, feel free to email me at all the things that keep us up at gmail.com. Stay safe, stay healthy, be aware of your surroundings, and don't end up being a subject on my podcast. He removed a foot of bowel that had been wrapping around my other organs, likely causing a lot of pain and could have killed me at any second. He also removed my appendix that was showing signs of trouble and was moved by my bowels to a place that no one would have known if it ruptured. He also fixed a hernia. He is my angel. I will forever be thankful for his skilled hands that saved me again from death. Recovery from that is no joke. I was told to expect six months before I could return to work and my life. I told them, give me two weeks and I'll be back to normal. It took a little longer than two weeks, but not much. I'm so grateful my husband and my kids helped rehabilitate me and take care of me. My amazing staff held down the fort at work, and I was able to return quickly. I was also, for the first time in my adult life, in remission from Lyme. I had no symptoms. I stayed symptom-free for four months. It was amazing to be able to feel what it's like not to be in constant pain. When symptoms started to creep back in, it was slow. I went to my doctor and she let me know about a quote-unquote cure. It's new, it's dangerous, 
but it might actually cure Lyme disease. We weighed the pros and cons, prayed about it, and decided to go for it. The biggest side effect is it causes suicidal thoughts and can also harm your liver. It's back to bi-weekly blood draws and herxing. A herx is your body responding to treatment. It often makes your symptoms way worse before you get better. I got through the first month and was doing well when Corona hit the U.S. With so much unknown from the coronavirus, we decided to delay treatment until we knew a bit more. I stopped treatment and my Lyme symptoms came back with a vengeance. I think the stress from so much unknown, having to close my business and homeschool the kids, all while my husband is still going out and keeping Rockford safe, he did end up having exposure and needed to self-quarantine, and thankfully his COVID test was negative. About two weeks into our safe at home, I became very suicidal, still a side effect from the medication that will hopefully, quote-unquote, cure me, mixed with the stress that we were all feeling as humans trying to get through this crisis. I was going to leave this part out because I'm still kind of in shock from the intense nature of it all. The air hunger I hadn't experienced in so long came back and I started to have panic attacks again that were the most severe and intense I'd ever felt. My loving mother-in-law had to come help me with my youngest as I got through it. I have never had one in front of the kids like that before. I lost control of my bladder and some leg control. I thank God every day that he protects my hands from this so I can make art. I honestly had to fight to live every single day for weeks. I put a lot of pressure on myself to be perfect. The perfect wife, the perfect boss, the perfect artist. I like having control over my schedule, my life, and my business. I lost control of all those things when the coronavirus came. I'm also crazy protective of my people, my kids, the artists that work for me, my close friends, and knowing that I couldn't protect them from not just the virus, but the loss of income, the loss of human touch, the loss of being connected in the ways that we were before, it just broke my body after it broke my mind. I decided two weeks ago to restart treatment and try for the cure. It feels like I'm trapped in a season of vampire diaries, always searching for the cure and something that just keeps popping up. But since restarting the medication, using medical marijuana, and adding oxygen therapy, I'm doing much better. This therapy is working faster than anything else has, and the research shows that after six months, I'll likely be in remission again, possibly forever. I have hope. I sometimes hesitate to share my story. It's not over yet. I don't know what the future holds. I do know the link between early-onset dementia symptoms and Lyme is clear and that I will likely not live to be old, so I'm cramming as much life into every day as I can. I also know that there's beauty in the unknown. Art has and will always be a place I go to lose myself. It's my escape from pain, and while I'm painting, drawing, or tattooing, I'm often so focused that I don't feel anything at all. The tattoo family we have built at Art and Soul, along with my own, has been such a rock and amazing support system through all of this. They have never once stopped believing in me or giving me hope that I will one day be better, even when I lose my own hope. They show up again and again, and I'm so thankful. What I love so much about my job tattooing is that it's exactly what I set out to do. That wide-eyed high school kid looking for art to save them is using art to make a difference. While I started to help others, it's really been at my saving grace. 
I am so passionate about our clients and sharing their visions and stories on skin and really understand the power tattoos can have in their healing process. From that little girl devastated by her dad's comments about her weight to the woman whose body betrays her often. I get to at least decorate it with art that makes me smile. I get to write my own story on my skin and I get to do that for other people. It's amazingly healing and important work. Being forced to stop tattooing during the corona crisis has been tough, but I know that soon we will be able to open our doors and love on our clients and each other again. I can't wait for that day. Human touch is really important, and I hope that after we have a vaccine and more treatments that we all appreciate it more, and when it's safe again to hug our friends, get haircuts or massages, and even tattoos. What I do know for sure is that you have to be your own advocate. You have to keep pushing and finding answers. I was seen by so many doctors, spent hundreds of thousands of dollars to get well. And it really just took two right people to look at me and find answers and help on this path to Lyme diagnosis. While the road ahead is unclear, I am thankful to have found a doctor that believes me, that believes in me, and is willing to always try the next thing for her patients. She advocates for me now and is such a blessing to our lives. I also share because if caught early, you can recover from Lyme. Please, as we all spend more time outdoors during the summer and quarantine, check yourself and your family for ticks. If you see a bullseye or think that you've been bit, seek help for a Lyme literate medical doctor in your area. As the country starts to reopen and we all start to reconnect with our lives, be good to each other and yourselves. We have all gone through trauma and are fighting battles that look different than they did just a few months ago. Kindness and love go a long way. Thanks again to everyone for listening to yet another episode of Here's My Story. I hope you enjoyed hearing Beth's story. One way you can let her know is to go to anchor.fm slash here's my story pod and leave a voice message for her or any of the other storytellers and let them know what you thought of their stories, give them encouragement going forward, or to simply say something about the show. In doing so, you could be heard on an upcoming episode. Again, thanks to Bill for so far being the only one. As always, thank you to everyone who's joined the Here's My Story Pod Facebook group, and don't forget that it's a private group where you can post freely without your friends seeing your posts. It's a safe space where people can talk openly about their problems, and there's nearly 300 people all willing to listen, offer advice and encouragement for whatever it is you have on your plate. You can also follow me at Here's My Story Pod on Twitter or Here's My Story Pod on Instagram. And also, don't forget to check out my new podcast that I'm doing with my daughter, the Naughty Words Podcast, available on Google, Spotify, Apple, and more. It's a far cry from being serious. We're just trying to have a little bit of fun. So check it out and let me know what you think and subscribe if it's something that you like. So go follow us at Naughty Words Pod on Twitter and Naughty Words Podcast on Instagram. I sincerely hope that you're enjoying this journey with me, but don't forget I need your stories because without you, there is no podcast. So please reach out to those that you feel may be interested in listening and possibly submitting. Or if you have a story to submit yourself, or if you have any questions, please email me at heresmystorypod at gmail.com. There are once again, no stories in hand for me to record, but I do know that there are a couple people out there working on their stories. And once I have them, I will be honored to share them. Plus, with the current situation that we're all dealing with, let's be honest, we all have a little bit more time on our hands. So maybe set aside a little bit of time to share your story for others to hear. 
If by chance you'd like to support the show financially, go to patreon.com slash here's my story pod. And don't forget to rate, review, subscribe to the show, and please share this on all social media platforms. That would be very helpful. I'm looking forward to hearing from as many people as possible to get their stories heard. Music for the show is always provided by Mike Protich. The song is called Stealing Life by Red Sun Rising. You can find this song everywhere you get your music fix. The song means a lot to me as always, and I'm honored to use it. That's all I have for now. Keep your eyes and ears peeled for my next episode, whatever that may be. But until then, remember, you are not alone. See you soon. What was it that you